Today's podcast is brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. Backed by AMC Networks, Shudder lets you discover a library of horror films from around the world and across the decades. The service has something for everyone from the casual fan to the hardcore horror devotee. Shudder is available on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, and Roku for $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership. But listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS, P-E-A-K-S, at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today to find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere. Welcome to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Jeff Jensen, TV critic for Entertainment Weekly. I'm Darren Franich, senior writer for Entertainment Weekly. And Darren, we are joined for the uh, second podcast that we're doing this week with a very special guest, ladies and gentlemen, Damon Lindelof, the co-creator of Lost and the co-creator of The Leftovers. How are you, Damon? I am wonderful. Hello. (laughs) I just love, I'm already so happy. That's the exact same joke that Jeff made in our last episode. And I'm so happy that hello has become the new meme of the new Twin Peaks. That's incredible. (laughs) It's popping memes like they're going out of style already. Damon, I know you're a big Twin Peaks fan. Uh, we had a great conversation about Twin Peaks um, several weeks ago. We posted it online as a Q&A that kind of really uh, dug deep into your Twin Peaks fandom and huge knowledge of the show and what it meant to you personally and then inspiring the things that you do. I'd love to know from your fans' point of view, I know that you were there um, on premiere night at the Hollywood premiere of Twin Peaks. What was that experience like for you? Um, you know... It was very exciting, and then as the minutes ticked by towards the inevitable sort of unfurling of it all, I started to feel kind of an intense anxiety, you know, that trying to find some kind of balance between what my expectations were and, I, in fact, identifying what my expectations were. You know, if you asked me, like, what do you expect from this? I didn't even know how to answer that, but I think that, you know, it, it kind of had this high school reunion vibe where it's like so much time has passed and I have the sense of who these people were at a specific point in my life, but what have they become and, you know, and what does it mean to me? And, uh, but then just the, the feeling that David Lynch was in a, you know, in a physical uh, proximity to me and he was going to introduce it. And then as the lights went down, I kind of started feeling a real intense regret that I wasn't experiencing the show the way that I had experienced every other episode of Twin Peaks, which is like either with my dad who has now passed away or just, you know, one or two other people. And that it was a very, to to sit there in a theater and watch it surrounded by all these other humans who were having their own rides that was certainly influencing the way that I was watching it. But more importantly, when it ended, when it was over, this being surrounded by all these other people and all of us were expected to kind of say right then in that second, here's my assessment of what I just saw and just being in awe of what David Lynch did uh, and Mark Frost and everybody else involved, of course. But in in terms of like, they just did not um, make something that uh, should have a hot take attached to it. Like I wasn't really ready. um, And you were there as well. uh, Both of you guys, I don't know about you, but I just wasn't really ready to talk about it yet, but I felt like I had to because now we're being shuffled off to this after party and, you know, everybody had had the same experience. So it feels like we all had to talk about what just happened, but I wasn't really ready. Now I am, but I wasn't then. Yeah, I totally agree, Damon. Like, and we we talked about it that night. I was one of those people with whom you spoke, and somewhat reluctantly, and and kind of awkwardly. That that was a weird experience right afterward. And I remember something that we talked about that night, which was, I wonder if we we need to sleep on it, and what will we think about it the next morning? And I know for me, like that that experience of being able to uh, sleep on it and wake up the next day and then just sort of really reflect on it. And Darren and I had a conversation, you know, we recorded our first podcast about it. I enjoyed it a lot more. And this has been my experience 
uh, so far in this journey, there is my immediate experience of Twin Peaks of these episodes. And then there is this sort of like slow detonation. It gets even better upon reflection. And uh, Darren, I don't know if you feel the same way about that. I mean, I had the same experience that you guys did, I think, at the premiere, which is that afterwards, in kind of conversation, like, you know, my fiance was there, a couple coworkers, a couple friends, all we could kind of talk about were the absolute craziest elements. Like, you know, we were sort of focusing in on stuff like when the brain tree was talking to him and just, you know, that that was just like the initial wave that hit me was the kind of madness of it all. And then upon rewatching and certainly upon watching parts three and four, I just kind of felt like there was more for me to kind of grasp onto because I did not know what to make of those first two parts after I saw them and I, I guess I'd be intrigued like Damon um, having now seen parts three and four what are some of your kind of like general thoughts I mean like how has your sort of perspective on what you saw at the premiere shifted you know since you first saw those two parts and since you've kind of dug further into the new season yeah, first off I think that I think that it's teaching us how to watch it you know, and I went in with the hubris of, I know how to watch Twin Peaks. You know, I've watched Twin Peaks. So I have that experience and 25 years has passed, but it's like riding a bike and I know how to watch it. And I, I, and I don't like after, and, and David Nevins had been saying something, I, I think like kind of both in the press and, and then when I ran into him at the, uh, at the after party, he reiterated it to, in person, which was, you kind of need to watch the first four hours. Just trust me when I say this. And um, in order to kind of like get get a sense of what's going on. And I thought he meant what's going on in terms of like on a plot level, because that's the way our brains work. Like, here's what's happening. I only now, having seen, uh, having followed his instructions, understand what he meant, which was what's going on doesn't mean here, you know, here's the plot. It means like something different is happening. Um, there are recognizable characters and institutions, but, you know, things that are familiar in both tone and storytelling and dialogue, but it, but it is something new. And that to me is kind of the most exhilarating thing of, of watching it. And I also enjoyed the third and fourth hours much more, A, because I got to experience them just sitting in front of my television set, but I also could stop and rewind stuff. And I'm like, oh, shit, that is how I watched Twin Peaks. You know, back, back when it was on in the early 90s, my dad and I would record it on our VCR and stop it and rewind it. And instead of experiencing the show start to finish linearly, you could kind of stop, you know, I, I stopped it and rewound it a lot in episodes three and four because I, I just needed to see stuff again immediately. Maybe that's not the way that David Lynch and Mark Frost or, or David Nevins wants me to experience it, but I, but I, I do feel like it was just too much. Um, it was too overwhelming to, to, to sit through the entire hour without taking a breath or reviewing stuff. Absolutely. I, I agree with that. I mean, I, upon reflection, I, I wish that I had not experienced parts one and two for the first time on the big screen. I mean, it was a really cool experience to be there. But um, I, I recognized after watching them again and liking them much more on the small screen, um, I think they actually look better on the small screen. There were some scary moments on the big screen that, that had some really visceral power, but I think it looks better. And I enjoy just sort of that intimacy and being able, yeah, to control the experience to be able to stop and reflect on things. The other part of my experience that I've been slowly uh, dying to that I would say is I, I have been confronted by my nostalgia for Twin Peaks. And I, I think I am kind of guilty of being that fan who came to this kind of thinking like, like uh, I love Lynch and I love Twin Peaks. And if Lynch wants to give me a crazy Mulholland Drive Inland Empire experience, I'm ready for it. And then kind of really realizing that, no, I, I like, oh, but I kind of really wanted a twin, pure Twin Peaks experience too. 
And so I've been liking it more as I've been kind of giving up, if you will, the expectation that this is going to be a show that's in the town that I love, with characters that I love, with Agent Cooper being Agent Cooper, and just sort of accepting it on its uh, own terms. And I've been I've been liking it more. And Damon, I'd be curious to know, like, did the whole concept of, of a show that is taking place in multiple cities with different characters and not even Twin Peaks character, did that throw you or excite you when, when you first encountered that uh, watching the new show? Both. It, it threw me and it excited me. I mean, I, again, I sort of feel like my mind was working so hard to kind of grasp what I was seeing that I wasn't able to just let it wash all over me. But I'll just say, like, the emotional experience of the first establishing shot of New York City and how non-traditional that shot was, was exhilarating for me. And then, but it was sort of coupled with this other feeling, which is like, this doesn't feel like Twin Peaks. And how, outs, how unentitled I am, that's not even a word, but I, I'm not allowed to say what is Twin Peaks and what is not Twin Peaks. Only the makers of Twin Peaks are authorized to do that. And so for me to basically be like, uh, Twin Peaks only takes place in Twin Peaks. And, you know, I, now, we're, now I'm in North Dakota and now I'm in Vegas. And, like, this, this is not allowed. That is, that is the most, you know, ridiculous, like, entitled, you know, fan service kind of thinking. And I'm ashamed that I was engaging in it. And they, they should be allowed to do whatever they want. I'm entitled to like it or not like it. But, again, now that I have seen four hours of it, I love the idea that the majority of the things that are unfolding so far are happening outside of Twin Peaks. And then every once in a while, you'll just cut to an exterior of the sheriff's station and you'll be like, oh, right, that's, I'm watching that show. And I think that the fact that it is moving around and it is so un- unpredictable, but you know, it is all tied together in some way, maybe not uh, in terms of a conventional narrative, but it's tied together in terms of this is where David Lynch and, and Mark Frost want to take us. I'm just completely and totally on board. And, you know, if I have one regret uh, or, or like it's not even a criticism, but something that I'm bummed out about after having seen the third and fourth episode is I really hope we're not done with the Black Lodge because you know, now that, now that Cooper seems to be out and and the fact that we, that even though he's out, we get to sort of experience it in non-traditional ways. But I was, I'm just all the way in on all that stuff. I found the first, you know, I, I don't know how long it was. It felt like it was like half an hour of episode three, just I would have gone anywhere in that in that space. It, I was just absolutely and totally hypnotized by it in all the best ways. I'd be intrigued to know, Damon, um, you know, because in your own work, you've definitely explored some narratives that go into these spaces that, you know, you might call dream spaces or surreal spaces or hyperreal or like, or like, you know, that are kind of above reality. I mean, you're kind of talking about that sequence in the Black Lodge that for me was just pushing against even my fragile understanding of how the Black Lodge worked. Like, I, I even kind of thought I knew that I had a handle on, you know, what the reality of this space was. And then the more we kind of followed Dale through his fall, it just became clear that we were just kind of starting to scratch the surface. I mean, as a storyteller, I'd be intrigued to know, like, what was it like kind of experiencing that moment? I mean, it it just seems like with that kind of storytelling, it could be so exciting. But I imagine there's also some interesting pitfalls that can happen when you're just moving through this totally out there, surreal space. Like, uh, what was it about it that really sort of, you know, got you going, that kind of got you? you really so exhilarated? A, I think it's just incredibly brilliant filmmaking and n- not, not just directorially, but I think also like on a performance level, if you're, if you're Kyle McLaughlin and you have to act in those scenes, just like what kind of choices do you make when, when you are acting across from a woman whose eyes are sewn shut and she's, you know, making these cutting uh, gestures across her neck. Like, are you supposed to be scared? Are you supposed to be confused? Like, so I was just riveted by, by what it was. And then there's this other part of our brains, and I know that Jeff, Jeff's brain works this way 
uh, very much, which is you're looking for clues and you're trying to interpret, you know, the symbology and what do these numbers on the outlet mean? And, you know, uh, like, who is the woman with her eyes sewn shut? And uh, and how does this connect into the larger narrative? And Twin Peaks has always been a show that basically um, talks about the Tibetan method and says that it believes in the power of dreams and the interpretive power of dreams. And so it's directing the audience to basically play that game and unlock things. And some things may be completely and totally arbitrary and other things may um, completely and totally connect in. But at a certain point, just the sheer bravura, you know, sequential absurdist filmmaking in terms of saying, we're going to bring Cooper out of the, the Black Lodge via outlet, but but the cigarette lighter inside Evil Cooper slash Bob, whatever it is we want to call him, his car simultaneously, and then and then suddenly out of nowhere, here is Dougie with a completely and totally naked prostitute, and he is played by Kyle McLaughlin and and. In you know, in in weight adding prosthetics with this incredible hairdo and a Century Twenty One blazer, and he's now puking up his internal organs, and you're just like, okay, I'm going to stop playing the interpretation game, and I'm just in, like all the way in. And what's interesting about Dougie in particular, and I could just talk about Dougie all day, but when he appears in the Black Lodge. He's the first person in the series that since it's been reintroduced to essentially say the words, this is weird, you know, like he's the only person who's having the reaction that the audience is having. There's he's sitting in the Black Lodge. There's a man with one arm talking backwards and his Dougie's reaction is like, what, you know, and then when his when his hand starts retreating into his sleeve before his head explodes and he turns into a pearl or whatever the hell that is, he he does say, this is weird. And very rarely do the characters on Twin Peaks do that. And there's this conversation between Gordon and Albert where they are both struggling, one of whom is played by David Lynch himself. And they're having a conversation about like, do you understand the situation? <laughs> you know, do you understand what is happening right now? And I'm like, oh, Good. It's a, if David Lynch is confused, you know, we're all on the same page. So to answer your question in a very long-winded way, Darren, I think like I usually when I used dreams or surrealist language or absurdist language on, on in my storytelling, I usually try to have one of the characters saying, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, because I anticipate that's what the audience is feeling and they need some sort of proxy to tether them into their own emotional experience. But the fact that David Lynch is kind of doing the same thing in a slightly off-kilter slash humorous way, I mean, those line readings from McLaughlin as Dougie are the greatest things that I've seen on television in 2017. I'm prone to hyperbole, but, like, I just loved it. With all that said, Damon, I'd love to know, do you have a theory about the space station there in negative space that Cooper fell into? I, You know, it's funny because when Darren and I talked about it earlier today, my brain does work that way. You're absolutely right. I'm constantly looking for clues. I am looking to, ha- to have a theory about something. That was the one thing that I felt so confounded that I was like, I am just going to give myself over to the utter weirdness of this. And if the show wants to explain this literally to me in terms of how, what this space is exactly and how it works later on, great. I'm just going to like, go like just roll with the mood and the filmmaking of it all. But I'm curious to know, do you have a theory and who do you think is pounding on the outside of that, uh, of that space station? Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, first off, let's just bask in the amazingness of the question, who do you think is pounding on the outside of that space station? And a week ago, if I had said to you, you will be asking me that question about Twin Peaks, we would have just high-fived each other and wept. But um, my, I'll take the last part first, which is my guess is that whatever came out of the box and shredded the faces off of those um, those young people is probably what was pounding on that door. And it doesn't seem to be an infestation of what we would call Bob, because Bob's current, 
you know, soul slash, um, you know, corporal being does seem to be physically residing in the body of Dale Cooper as we know it. So it doesn't, it is not, it isn't, it doesn't appear to be present in this space that we'll define as the Black Lodge. It is some other entity. And it, you know, should we be guessing at its identity? Is it, you know, uh, if I had to guess, if, if, if David Lynch is interested in answering, here's what, what, this is what was knocking, this is what came out of the box, my guess is that that's Laura Palmer, you know, because she was a pretty dark and twisted, fucked up individual herself. And she may be floating around the, the Black Lodge and, and looking to get free. But I'm not sure that he is interested in answering that question. And I would be just fine if he didn't. Um, I don't need to know, you know, uh, who the woman with her eyes sewn shut is or who the, the woman in the red dress was or whether they're the same woman. I like the idea that the tree with the talking brain on it is now the man from another place. And it seemed pretty obvious that they wanted us to basically draw that conclusion. But when you try to build these kind of narrative systems around these sorts of stories that, that David Lynch is telling us, I think that it just basically leads to insanity and frustration. And I'm not, I, I, I don't, I'm not signed up for either one of those. But, you know, you asked the question and, and I answered it. I am more curious as to who the mysterious billionaire is. This is, this is what I've been saying. Who's the mysterious billionaire? I've been saying all along that it's Billy Zane from season two, which Jeff thinks I'm joking, but I'm really not joking on this. That'd be a nice little nice little greeting card for the fans of episodes 15 through 21. I'm kind of suspicious of Benjamin Horn myself. I I think that maybe that one scene that we got of him um, in, in, episode, in part one, where he seems to be sort of a a more mature person as a red herring fake out. And uh, I- I'm wondering if maybe a clue to his connection to New York City um, has something to do with the fact that he name drops New York City in that scene where he notes the the one customer that is, and her friends from New York City that come and have, have and, and, and spend a lot of money in the, in the spa. I'm wondering, I- I'm suspicious of Benjamin Horn personally about that for, yeah, for the I billionaire. Mean- Look, I'm sure that the Great Northern has been doing very well, and let's just say that he's expanded his real estate empire somewhat over the course of the last 25 years, but billionaire with a B. I don't think that he's like still hanging out, chatting with Ashley Judd if, in, the, in, in managing the Great Northern if he has that kind of resource. So I guess my question is, and I haven't rewatched one and two, do we have any gender specificity about the billionaire when the billionaire is mentioned? Or does the kid just say it's, it's some billionaire? Does he say he? No, I think there is no gender specificity. My guess is it's Laura Dern. That the billionaire is a character that we have not yet met, that is not attached to you know, the canon that we call Twin Peaks. But I just feel like Laura Dern is such a heavy hitter in the, you know, in the Lynch kind of oeuvre, and that when he deploys that weapon that is Laura Dern, it's going to be in a very significant way. And the fact that we are four hours into an 18-hour journey now, and we're approaching kind of the, the, the quarter pole, um, and we have not seen her yet, uh, she is either Diane or the mysterious billionaire. That is that is my um, that is my theory. Nice. I, I'm going for Laura. I think Laura Dern's playing Diane personally, and I'm wondering if my my other backup theory for the billionaire is that is that we we are going to get Agent Jeffries in some form in this story. Uh, he won't be played by David Bowie, unfortunately, but I, I'm wondering if he's going to be played by someone else. And if over the years he's accumulated some kind of wealth through all of his uh, strange, dirty dealings in South America, there is this emerging kind of idea in this story that like um, Jeffries and or Dirty Cooper were involved in like knocking off some drug runners operation in Colombia or something like that. Darren, am I, am I, am I reading that correctly? There's, they're developing something like that with that idea, right? 
that's more clarity than I think I had previously on the plot line. But yeah, and, and again, I'm still confused because this either does tie into some of the scenes from Firewalk with me and the missing pieces where David Bowie was in South America, or it doesn't tie into that at all. But I, I am just so tickled that... You know, if if you could have told me that, you know, this new season was going to dig deep into the mythology of Twin Peaks, I would have believed you. If you could have told me that Philip Jeffries would be a big part of it, I, I, I'm just, I'm so fascinated by that and by how much this season has dug into Firewalk with me in particular as, as a sort of launch pad for the next phase of, of the story. But yes, there seems to be some kind of drug running operation. All right, while we're going down the Jeffries uh, rabbit hole and basically losing everyone who's listening to this podcast in the process, but hey, that's what we're here for. Um, do you guys see this this Joan Chen letter that was written to David Lynch in character as Josie Packard? No. So I, I can't vouch for the authenticity of it because it was texted to me by by our by our colleague uh, um, Alan Sepinwall, who has also gone down you know the the rabbit hole. But you should seek it out. I think he found it. It has like a, it has a Hollywood Reporter, you know, watermark on it, which seems to legitimize it and source it to the Hollywood Reporter. But in the body of this letter, which is actually kind of beautifully written, it starts: "I write to you from the wooden drawer knob in which I have been trapped for the past two decades, journeying restlessly for an escape." Um, but then in the third paragraph. It, she writes, oftentimes I think of Judy, my twin sister. I imagine her wandering drunkenly to the room, holding the drawers which imprison me, incinerating suddenly due to the sheer volume and flammability of the alcohol in her veins. Wasn't Jeffries going on and on about Judy? Yes, I can speak a little of this through some journalism and research done by the great Twin Peaks fan magazine uh, wrapped in plastic. Wrapped in plastic, yeah. Um, we met and, that guy. John, John, right? Yeah, John Thorne, yep. one of the, the co-creators of Wrapped in Plastic. And that magazine did some great research over the years, just really kind of digging into the behind the scenes of the making of, of Twin Peaks and Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. And he did an interview with Robert Ingalls, who was the co-writer with Lynch on Firewalk with me. And they talked to John about sort of some plans that they had for the David Bowie character, the whole Judy thing. And that from what I understand from all of this reporting is, is that the intention here, and I don't know how they were going to do it within the context of a single prequel film, or if they maybe had some grand plan of making more Twin Peaks films if that first one hit. But the idea was to use Jeffries to open up a whole new wing of the mythology in which you were going to find out that, yes, Judy was linked to Josie Packard and that there was this whole other drama taking place in Seattle involving other characters. So if this this Josie letter that the Hollywood Reporter published is sort of like canon. If it's this is in like, game, guys, this is like the Comey memo of Twin Peaks. It's ex- it's an explosive <laughs> <That's> document. It, <laughs> it is. <laughs> um, but I but I love how they're being faithful and true almost to all of this stuff that they had back in the day, but never got out. But yeah, like uh, th- that that sounds kind of legit. Look, we know that you know we know that Lynch is 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 obsessed with identical twins. You know, he did it with uh, Maddie is obviously a cousin of Laura's, but you know, invitation to love um, strongly suggests the idea of you know of identical twins. And this letter would seem to suggest that Joan Chen had been told at some point uh, by Lynch that she would potentially return as Josie's identical twin uh, sister, Judy. And she is using this uh, piece of information as a way of trying to get, get back onto the show. Now, I, this letter leaked to the press. I think we know who leaked it. Uh, I don't think it was David Lynch. Um, I don't think it was uh, Jared Kushner. I think that, uh, that Joan Chen is probably, is probably frustrated by the fact that, you know, the show is back and she is not and um, and wanted to go on record as saying that she was ready, willing and able and in the process of doing so. And I'm, I'm not saying this at all facetiously. It is a beautifully written letter like the prose 
and it's in character. She's writing uh, as Josie. I'm not sure whether it's a great in, in, ingenious piece of viral uh, constructed by Frost, like whether or not, again, it, this arrived as all things Twin Peaks should via text from a, from a friend of mine um, uh, or a colleague of mine in this case, when Alan and I are, are, are not talking as, as critic and criticized. Um, we are just fans in the same way that often uh, Jeff and I uh, speak about this stuff. Um, but I'm just sort of like, uh, I want to believe in this letter, and then I want to go down the rabbit hole and understand exactly what it means in the context of of uh, of the show and the behind the scenes. And I, let me just speak to one other thing that Darren said, which is I really hope that they don't recast Jeffries. And I'm really relieved that it doesn't seem like they've recast Harry S. Truman. Um, they've found a way to introduce Robert Forrester as the new sheriff of Twin Peaks as Harry's brother. And they're not going to recast on Keene, who, who didn't want, who is retired and didn't want to come back. Uh, one of the things that I really did not like about Fire Walk With Me was the decision to recast Laura Flynn Boyle. It just like Donna was so ingrained in my, um, in my cerebrum. And also I was deeply and profoundly in love with Laura Flynn Boyle, but it was like, this is nothing against the actress that they, they used to recast her. But it, I, I feel like the, that they're not recasting anyone um, in this new series. And the way that they figured out how to say, well, you know, Michael J. Anderson isn't coming back. So now he's a tree with a brain in it. And Michael Onkeen isn't coming back. So now his brother basically runs the, the sheriff the sheriff's department. Like, I, I hope that they, they honor Bowie by not recasting Jeffries. Or if Jeffries appears, he's something completely and totally wacky, like, um, you know, a talking chicken or something like that. <laughs> That's great. Um, on that laugh line, uh, Damon, I wanted to ask you, this is something that Darren and I talked about uh, a lot. Um, the comedy in parts three and four get really turned up. We get that great Lynchian comedy, that great Twin Peaks comedy. Did you find yourself laughing a lot during uh, parts three and four? And what do you think that does, that the, the comedic side does uh, for the story? Again, you know, the brilliance of Lynch's comedy is that when you are laughing at it, but you can't explain why it's funny. And I was, I was, um, I sometimes, when our, when our son goes to bed, I watch television with these, you know, with these Wi-Fi headphones on and my wife, Heidi, is off doing something and she just hears me cackling and she's like, she comes in, she's like, I thought you were watching Twin Peaks. And I was like, I am. And she says, what's so funny? And I said, what's so funny is Michael Sarah is playing a character, you know, that seems to be like Marlon Brando from The Wild Ones you know, motorcycle Brando, the character's name is Wally Brando. He's doing Brando. And he's talking about the great anxiety and strife that his parents have been feeling about changing his childhood bedroom into a study. And he has returned to tell them that they are now relieved of this strife because he's going to allow it to happen. And then he starts talking about Lewis and Clark and it is the most yeah. hysterical thing, you know, all deference to Master of None and The Good Place and Silicon Valley and all the great comedies on television right now. That is the funniest scene I have seen in years. <laughs> Heidi did not think it was funny, as I described it to her. Really? So, well, you know, we're all entitled to, uh, to what we get tickled by. Well, and so uh, on that note, I'd be kind of intrigued to know, like, one of the things that I think has come across so strongly in parts three and four, kind of going back to what you were saying, Damon, about, like, how you understand the show differently after you've seen these first four hours, is I think just I I'm understanding the pace of it so much more, and I I'm understanding the way these sequences are building at a very gradual level. Um, and, I mean, I I'd be intrigued to know just, it seems to me as if whether you're making a, a movie or a TV show or any sort of story, there's this kind of natural tension to always kind of like, you know, you want to kind of let a moment sit, but you also want to kind of keep things moving and like, you know, keep the pace moving. And I feel like especially 
on a TV show that has this sort of grander story to tell. It seems as if like, you know, sometimes there's a tension towards like, you know, not hanging out too much. And it just seems like there are moments in, in parts three and four where just you can't believe how leisurely the pacing is and the way that that pays off. It's just so interesting and so unique. I mean, are, are there any kind of sequences from maybe parts three and four specifically that to you are just like kind of an, an expression of this, of this ability to kind of linger in a moment, like maybe long past the point when some people might, it just seems like these scenes are kind of being allowed to sit in a way that I've kind of rarely seen on television or, or in movies or, or, you know, anywhere really. Oh man. You know, what a question. I mean, is there a part of me that feels like I'm being trolled? Absolutely. And I love it. And I don't even know if my definition of being trolled is the same one that David Lynch would have for trolling me. But it's sort of like, you know, aren't we feeling a little bit as we watch Jacoby spray painting shovels for five minutes, you know, and then we're and then we're out, you know, that it's sort of like, it's Lynch saying, I'm interested in this right now, but maybe it will add up to something. Maybe it's just Jacoby doing art. Like, but again, I, I'm kind of riveted by all of it. And I'm also like, there's this other interesting thing happening where we use words like good or bad to, to empirically talk about the series as a whole or, or an episode of the series or a specific scene in the series. And what's sort of fascinating to me about what I've been watching is both things are true. I would say that the scene between Horse and Lucy and Andy talking about chocolate bunnies is empirically bad. It is also empirically great. You know, it's, it's both things simultaneously. And I, I just don't know how you do that. I've witnessed it. I can't explain how it is both good and bad simultaneously, but it is. And, it, and the scenes go on way too long and yet not long enough. The pacing is, you know, is both deliberate and, but there, it does feel intentional. Um, the tangents that the show takes where suddenly, yeah, sure, let's go into the house across the street from, uh, from the house where Dougie and, and the prostitute just emerged and watch this woman screaming out a number um, while lighting her cigarette with a, you know, a miniature blowtorch. Yeah, like, okay, let's do that. Does it all add up to anything? Is there a purpose behind it? Does it mean anything to use Roy Neary speak? Who cares? I'm in. You're listening to a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks. If you're fans of the dark horror and bizarre strangeness of Twin Peaks, be sure to check out Shudder. It's a premium streaming video service backed by AMC Networks, devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense. They have great films on here, whether you want to find a classic suspense film, a cat and mouse thriller, good old-fashioned monster movie. They have Frailty, directed by the great Bill Paxton, an absolutely fantastic horror film I recommend everyone see. This week's Shudder highlight is Yord Scott, a 10-episode folk horror series about a policewoman named Eva who returns to her hometown seven years after her daughter's disappearance to investigate a new wave of vanishing children. There are secrets in town, supernatural secrets, something strange deep in the forest. If she exposes what's going on there, it could make someone or something very angry. Check it out on Shudder. For $4.99 a month or $49.99 with an annual membership, you can access Shudder on the web, iOS, Android, Chromecast, Apple TV, or Roku. But listeners of this podcast can get a free month simply by entering the promo code PEAKS at checkout. That's P-E-A-K-S. Free month. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere. Speaking of things that are empirically good, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about uh, season three of The Leftovers, which I think has been a, a fantastic season of television and I'm bummed that it's about to end, but uh, congratulations on on everything with season three. 
this past Sunday, you you guys aired your penultimate episode of the season, The Most Powerful Man in the World and His Identical Twin Brother, which is a sequel to International Assassin from, from last season, and, and might be the in a show that has its own fair share of surrealism and strange things that happen. These episodes have been strike me as, as very Lynchian in some ways. And I'd love to know like what what was was Lynch an inspiration for the visuals and the storytelling of, of, of both of these episodes? Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I would say that one of the things that's been great is The Leftovers is written in an incredibly collaborative environment um, with a number of, you know, incredibly talented writers and storytellers. And I think what's been great is I think that I'm... Uh, I'm really the only massive Twin Peaks fan in the room. I think that there's a range of, yeah, watched it and liked it or have it all the way down to haven't seen it, you know, represented in the in the leftovers writers room. And in particular those two episodes, International Assassin and then and then the one that just aired were were co written by Nick Hughes, who is not at all in the tank for you know, he was born after Twin Peaks aired. Um, so I don't even know if he's seen it, or at the very least, we haven't really talked about it in, in great length. And Nick's own personal sensibilities, in addition to, I think, that the room at large is to skew away from surreality and to find narrative constructs happening inside a surrealistic realm. So it's like we needed to find the language of a political thriller in order to kind of tell our story that actually had, you know, tangible narrative goals like assassinating someone and following that path in a way that I don't think David Lynch would ever want to. That said, the idea of stumbling around in an alternate dimension or potentially an afterlife or potentially a purgatory, uh, call it what you will, but you know, I don't think that The Leftovers could ever do something like The Black Lodge. We always try to define our spaces in, in, a, in a more traditional way, like a hotel or a bridge or, you know, or a bunker, like readily identifiable uh, spaces that are not surreal and then have surreal things happen in them. But I do think that the identical twin idea, you know, we use the Patty Duke show. Uh, the, you know, Patty sings the theme from it. Uh, the end title song that, that starts over Kevin and his dad on the roof is sung by Patty Duke. That was brilliantly discovered by our editor, David Eisenberg. The Patty Duke show and the fact that Patty Duke played identical cousins on that show, I think, probably was something that inspired Lynch and, and himself in, in, the, um, in the Laura and Maddie idea. So it, it's, it's all sort of swirling in the consciousness of the show. But if there's anything that season two of Twin Peaks proved is like, you cannot imitate Lynch. Do not even try. Like, you can be inspired by, by what he does, but like only Lynch can do Lynch and as it should be. And I feel like we had wackier ideas or ideas that kind of delved into what I would say a more surrealistic realm. But it was very important for us, for Kevin in particular, to always be, you know, to always be Dougie, to always say, this is not normal. I am a real person and I have conscious memory of who I am outside of this space. And I am the audience's proxy for all the wacky things that are happening inside it. Whereas I think in, in Lynch's surrealism, the characters, you know, in, in a non-surrealistic world, the moment that Wally Brando shows up, Robert Forster, you know, uh, Truman should say, what the hell are you talking about? Like, what are you wearing? And that's not happening because, because they are, everybody is basically signed up to be in the surrealistic realm. The Leftovers is using, you know, surrealistic, absurdist, you know, kind of constructs, but we always try to tether it to the, as, as much to the quote unquote real world as we can. This episode of The Leftovers was, a, in some ways, a, a culmination of this season-long uh, sense of dread and suspense as the world gears up for another anniversary of the sudden departure and this fear that perhaps something uh, equivalent might occur again, um, a, another great departure of people, maybe even the end of the world. And in this story, Kevin, um, a, as he did last season, he has to go on a mission. He goes on a mission in 
into this space that might be, you know, a mystical dream time space. It might be the afterlife. It might be a total dream, but he has to access it by having a, a either dying or having a near death experience. He enters into this world and he has a, he, he goes on this uh, rather crazy uh, dream-like journey in which he's toggling back and forth between himself and uh, who he's now the president of the United States and this assassin who's trying to kill him. And, and he's on a journey. He's, he, has to, he has to accomplish a certain things, a couple of certain things, including finding a song, a song that he's been told by his father that if he can bring the, this song out of this world and it can be sung, it might save the world from this flood. And I, I won't spoil everything for anyone who hasn't yet seen this episode, but it builds to this rather amazing scene in which the two Kevins in their respective characters, brothers, like face off and, and Kevin's uh, own arc comes to a, a conclusion of sorts for now in, in the conflict between them and the resolution between them. And it's an amazing scene. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, Damon, if you might be able to take us behind the scenes just a little bit in that moment. Like, how do you create such a, an intense, emotional and satisfying scene with Thoreau acting opposite Thoreau? Like, was that a pretty difficult sequence to, to shoot? Uh, yeah, for sure. And I, you know, and I think that it starts with probably the most important piece of that, which is Thoreau. He knew between seasons that the arc of this season would be culminating in a, in a, in a return to, you know, to, to the space of international assassin. And all of us from, from the, from the writers to, um, the production to, to particularly Justin, we're all like, you know, we, we have to try to emulate the best sequels and the best sequels, you know, whether it's Godfather 2, which Kevin himself name checks or, or, um, or aliens actually kind of introduce new ideas into the mix. And so the idea that we were going to literally double down on Kevin's for the sequel and introduce this new idea of now he's got to assassinate himself, um, and all the emotional, sort of thematic connotations that that means, which is like, what, what does it mean to basically be, be hunting yourself, uh, trying to kill a part of your, your own psyche, et cetera. That was kind of the jumping off point. And Thoreau, so we had very early on the idea that assassin Kevin was going to be tasked with killing President Kevin, but it was Justin who said, I love that idea but I also feel like I just have this image in my head of Kevin and Patty Levin wearing white, holding hands, uh, walking down a beach is what he said. And I don't know why that, why I have that stuck in my head, but the moment that he said it, everything just clicked together and it was like, oh, he's in the guilty remnant. The guilty remnant has basically taken, you know, has won this election and he is a representative of what would happen if the guilty remnant were, um, were the, the ruling political party in the United States. It was just so crazy and absurd. And it also brought the GR back in a way that I felt was organic to the show, having blown them up in the season premiere. So he, he brought in that piece and then just, and just embraced the idea of, I'm going to play these two guys. The other thing that I also have to say is Craig Zobel, who directed um, episode six of season two, which was Lens, then returned just two episodes later to direct the original International Assassin, and then we invited him back knowing that this was going to be his episode this season. And, you know, he wanted to really direct that scene in a very non-gimmicky way, understanding that we were going to do this thing with, the, with Justin uh, playing both roles, but not having a lot of shots that kind of tied them together, uh, doing a little bit more poor man's process, but understanding that, that this conclusion was basically coming, you know, to both an emotional and a gory place. It was Patrick Somerville um, who basically wrote this uh, beautiful uh, piece of prose, Kevin's romance novel, that Justin's uh, uh, is very reluctant to read, but then gradually kind of falls into. And then, of course, I think that idea of the romance novel in general originated with Nick. But you have all these crazy, borderline stupid, silly ideas, uh, you know, kind of coming to a culmination in that scene. But the real inspiration for it was always The Wizard of Oz, which was my favorite uh, uh, movie as a kid. And what's amazing about that movie is that all the things that the characters say they want, a heart, a brain, courage, 
like, it's kind of a cop-out when they get to the wizard. Like, the wizard basically says, like, okay, A, I'm not really a wizard at all, and B, um, you had all that shit all along. Like, I'm gonna, I'll give you symbols of those things. And yet, the ending of Wizard of Oz is entirely satisfying and maybe was just a dream that Dorothy had. And yet, it's a classic. And so I was sort of like, if the Wizard of Oz, let's chase that. Let's, let's, let's see if all these crazy things that Kevin has been tasked with fall away one by one. And, as, and, and then coming into the final scene, he realizes... Evie Murphy doesn't really matter. Finding out what happened to Grace's kids' shoes doesn't really matter. Finding this, this flood song doesn't really matter. What matters is that he's come back into this space because there's something in himself that is emotionally defective, and now it needs to be removed. And that piece of himself is the part that needs to escape and run away and, and not allow himself to be vulnerable or in love with someone because to be that vulnerable with someone else would mean that he was in danger. And he's now going to pull that, that piece out of his own heart that, and we're going to do it literally, and why not to a Beach Boys song, because that makes sense. And Thoreau just, you know, Thoreau, Thoreau just completely and totally committed to it emotionally. And had he not done so, and had Zobel not completely and totally committed it to it directorially, um, and then you have the brilliant Anne Dowd basically returning, I was very reluctant to bring Patty back, because it feels like, you know, she exited the stage with such an incredible amount of grace the last time we saw her. If we're going to bring her out of retirement, she should be a little bit pissed off about that, the fact that Kevin sort of summons her. But now she's helping him. Last time he helped her, now she's returning to help him. All the calculus felt right. I mean, we're all speaking about this episode before I've kind of seen what the audience response to it is, but hopefully we, we played fair. That's the most important thing. And, you know, just major kudos to, I I get to have this conversation with you guys now, you know, some degree of authorship of The Leftovers is disproportionately attributed to me. All of these episodes, the third season, more than any other season that preceded it, was such an incredible group, group effort. I also have to mention Tom Parada, who hates stuff like this episode, because it's so far out there. If you can get Parada to embrace it and then start pitching these crazy ideas himself, and he starts leaning into the idea of it all, then, then, then we're home. And so uh, hopefully it worked. It certainly was a lot of fun to do. And, uh, yeah, we'll see. Um, one, one episode to go. Right, right. Well, this episode that is airing, the penultimate episode, is just one, one episode in a, in a string of episodes that is bringing this, this, this series to a close that have been just so strong, from the Matt-centric episode to the Laurie-centric episode, and all of these episodes dramatizing and exploring a theme from different angles with, with different conclusions of just about like people kind of recognizing or running away from the idea of, uh, of finding meaning and solace and comfort in each other and, and finding and realizing their responsibility to each other in the midst of uncertainty and uh, chaos and the end of the world or, 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 or not. And it's been really inventive and, 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 and really powerful. This episode ends, correct me if I'm wrong, Damon, but like we leave Kevin and his father up top of a roof and it seems to me that like the end of the world didn't happen. Are, am, am I reading that correctly? That is absolutely the reading. I mean, you know, the, uh, the, the world is still there. You know, the, the Murphys are, are sleeping and Senior is sitting on the rooftop. There was a really bad rainstorm, but, um, but the, you know, no apocalypse. You know, even, even the church, which was kind of stripped down to its, uh, you know, its, its bare essentials, has been relatively undamaged. So we're not even suggesting that, you know, any significant amount of time has passed. And yeah, very clearly, and I think that we we tried to message this in the way that we opened the third season, which was this show is not about an apocalyptic event occurring. It's about what is it about us as human beings that seems to want an apocalyptic event to occur, and then what the hell are we supposed to do with ourselves when it doesn't? So your read on that scene 
the disappointment of the world not ending, which is basically, you know, the, the Millerites, uh, that's a historical event that we opened the season with. When, the, when, that, when that happened and they were not brought up to heaven, it, it was called the Great Disappointment, which is, isn't that just an amazing thing about human nature that, you know, that we would, we would call it the Great Disappointment that the world didn't end. And yet somehow we find ourselves in these apocalyptic narratives over and over again. Maybe they're a way for us be, uh, to kind of fantasize or fetishize an escape from the mortal coil, because if the world's going to end, we don't have to deal with all the pain and suffering of what it is to be human. Right, right, yeah. And uh, one of the things I loved about about the ending of this episode is that it really sets us up for a finale where I really don't know what's going to happen, um, but is going to find its drama and resolution of, of a couple outstanding storylines, including uh, Nora and whether or not she, this season she's been pursuing this possibility that there are these scientists out there that have a machine that could perhaps reunite her with her family that has been vanished, that has been taken. Maybe she can go to the place where they're at or whatever it is, or maybe it's a scam. Maybe she's been fooled. And so I'm looking forward to finding out uh, exactly what's in store for her and and knowing kind of what the meaning of that scene that, that ended the first episode of the season in which seemed to be some kind of flash forward in terms of Nora being alive in the world, but denying uh, the existence of Kevin. But just in general... Well, well, hold on a second. Let me just clarify what you just said. Uh-huh. You know... She does not deny the existence of Kevin. She is asked, does the name Kevin mean anything to you? And she says no. Oh, that's so, right. Yes, of you know, course. I just, yes, I just okay. want to dot that I. Everything that else that you said, again, I don't want to be cutesy or, or teasy or anything like that. But I, but I will say, like, the things that you are hoping will be revisited and or resolved most certainly will be. Uh, in the finale. We're not going to take a hard left turn to spend an hour with Dougie, uh, as much as I wish we could. <laughs> oh, come on now. <laughs> that was going to be my question, actually. So uh, I, I will ask another one. So here we are, like one week before the end of, of The Leftovers. How, how are you feeling about that? And, and can you put in perspective yet what the ride of this show has, has meant to you? I'm not entirely sure that I can put it into perspective yet. I I would say that, you know, the the response to the third season of the show has been, you know, beyond my own personal wildest dreams. And while I had a lot of confidence and excitement about what we all did together, you just never know. You know, that, uh, such is the way as it goes in, in television and, and any, you know, any form of, of, at the risk of sounding, you know, pretentious art. But you don't know if people are going to get it, uh, let alone whether they're going to embrace it. And the journey of The Leftovers from its first season until now has, you know, has not what I, you know, one way of, of framing it would be to say that it's been inconsistent or bumpy. But I look at it as a smooth progression where, to circle back to what I was saying about Twin Peaks earlier, you know, the show is teaching us how to, to watch it. Um, the Leftovers was teaching us how to write it and, and how to do it. And I feel like by the time we got into the third season, um, we were much more uh, uh, confident in our storytelling than we were in, in the first. And so it's just been amazing to watch um, people getting it. That said, um, my own psyche is basically built to sort of wait for the other shoe to drop. So it's sort of like, this is too good to be true, and now the reckoning is coming. Um, and particularly as, as it surrounds the finale of the show, where I wish that we did not, as a culture, hold the finale in a disproportionate place to the series as a whole, where it's sort of like we're able to evaluate The Wire as a television series, and the finale really isn't even in the conversation, right? Like, um, it was good or maybe not the best episode of The Wire, or maybe the best episode of The Wire, but nobody talks about the finale of The Wire. Whereas The Sopranos, the conversation is completely and totally dominated by the finale. And then there's this other show, Lost or something like that. Jeff, have you seen that? Yes, Lost. Yes, I I, I watched that occasionally back in the day. 
Yeah, that show, you know, yes. is almost completely dominated by the finale as well. So I kind of feel like, you know, The Leftovers is poised to be judged based on its final 70 minutes. And, you know, this idea of, well, can it stick the landing? Will it stick the landing? That's not the culture, by the way. That's me, you know. Here's what I will say, and it may be, you know, jinxing it, it may be hubristic, but I'll just, I'll just tell you where I sit, which is, if I had a time machine, and I'm not entirely saying that I don't, but if I did, and I could travel back in time and have unlimited resource right now, knowing that the finale is coming, to change anything that I wanted about it, you know, to rewrite it, to, you know, to tell an entirely different story, to add a scene, to edit out a line, to do anything, I would not change a frame of it. I stand by what we did, and I am, am really pleased with it. Um, and I'm feeling that way now, and I really hope that no matter what happens in terms of the way that people either embrace or don't embrace it, that I still feel that way that I still feel really proud of everything that we did together. But, uh, you know, it's, um, I think that we all are savvy enough in terms of our culture to understand that the culture is going to center around two potential um, narratives for the Leftovers finale, one of which is, you know, Lindelof has redeemed himself, and the other of which is um, Lindelof has, has screwed us again. And I will just say that neither one of those narratives is accurate because I'm the the only thing in common between Lost and The Leftovers. And there were so many other critically important creative voices in building this show, The Leftovers, that had nothing to do with Lost. And that's not me deflecting blame. It's me trying to share the credit um, because this show does feel like a we show, not a me show. And I hope for all their sakes that they are not burdened by either of those narratives because uh, The Leftovers is just so monumentally larger than I. Well, and sort of on that note, I have to say, Damon, the fact that you ended the penultimate episode of The Leftovers, you and your collaborators, that that the penultimate episode ended with the president of the United States ordering a nuclear threat to end the world. And not only was that not in the finale, that wasn't the end of the penultimate episode. I, I feel like, you know, there's there's layers of sort of sticking the landing. And then there's like, well, there's there's a big old ending that happened that, you know, you, that you've never necessarily seen before. And anything after this feels like it's such uncharted territory. So I feel like, you know, it's, it's been interesting seeing how you guys have kind of approached the sort of notion of finality and even sort of confronted it in this episode that we just saw, kind of confronted it as far as like, what do people want and what are they trying to get out of this story and, and out of the world? So I, I, it's been interesting seeing that approach as we've sort of gotten down to these incredible final hours of uh, The Leftovers. Darren, do you want to hear a funny story? Please. So we were we were in um, in Paris, basically promoting the European premiere of of, um, of, of season three, and we had uh, we sent out advanced copies as as you guys as we did here in the states of of the seven episodes, the seven of the eight episodes. Um, so all the people who were we were doing press with, and I was there with Justin and Eccleston and and Max Richter, but pe- people were basically like you know, we were talking about all the episodes that the three of us are talking about now. They'd seen all seven. And in one of the interviews, one of the reporters just said, I just have to tell you, I loved the finale. I think it was the perfect place to end the show. It couldn't have been more perfect. <laughs> and, 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 and I said, I said, you, I said, you saw the finale, you know? And he said, yeah, with the two guys sitting on the roof, he goes, now what? You know, what a perfect way to end the show. And I said, there's one more, you know, and feeling when I, when I said that to him, I sort of felt like he'd be like, Ooh, like, and he was like, ah, <laughs> he was disappointed. <laughs> You're already disappointing people, Damon. <laughs> maybe, maybe we shouldn't even air it. Maybe we sh- it should just be like that Wu-Tang album that Martin Shkreli owns. You know, like, oh, 
<laughs> it exists, but we're never going to show it to anyone. Damon, you and I have had this conversation privately several times over the past several years. And full disclosure to our listeners, uh, you know, uh, Damon and I worked on a movie a couple years ago, and that was about during the time when you were working on the first and second seasons of The Leftovers. Um, and this third season is the first season that, like, I've known really nothing about and have been excited to take this journey. So while I'm a little biased about your work when it comes to leftovers here, um, I, I would say that I I disagree with you in the sense of like any sort of cultural pressure on you. Well, well on this show to give us some kind of transcendent finale that will, by which the, the season or the series will be judged. I think that these seasons, the past two in particular, have been so strong and been so, each episode has been, like has had such a great individual identity, especially this season. And I think especially after you, where you left off uh, the seventh episode, I, I don't feel like this is a story that is dependent on some big, like, final chapter to bring it home. I mean, it's it's been a rather beautiful thing individually each week. And I, and I think kind of this way that you've managed the story alleviates some of that pressure that falls on, on other shows, particularly the one that we kind of occasionally kind of remember or talk about, that lost thing. So I kind of disagree with you, man. I hope you're right. You know, and I'm, of course, deeply touched by what you said and... And I, all I can say is, I hope you're right. I mean, I, as Darren sort of indicated, the pyrotechnics, you know, everybody's already seen the pyrotechnics. The, you know, the big resolution for the season-long arc of what is going to happen on the seven-year anniversary of The Great Departure. And the answer is a whole lot of nothing, but hopefully watching the run-up to nothing was exhilarating. But, and, and now, I will tell you this, the finale doesn't feel like an epilogue. It does feel like a finale, but it's not, it doesn't rely on pyrotechnics. And I also hope that it's very surprising because it was very surprising for us as it revealed itself. And certainly from a writing standpoint, I, I lack complete and total objectivity on every level, but I can say that I can assess the, from a directing standpoint that it's the greatest work that Mimi Leader has ever done. And and if people don't like the finale, it's not because she didn't direct an incredible episode of television. It's for all sorts of other reasons. But, you know, that's one of the reasons that I think that I'm uncharacteristically confident about it is because of the work that, that Mimi did. And I can't single out the actors that are in it that are, or aren't in it, but just some incredibly extraordinary performances for many of the actors taking their final curtain call. And, you know, so I hope you're right, Jeff. And I now hope that it's going to be an entirely Dougie-centric episode. That's what I've gleaned <laughs> from, from everything that, that you've been saying. And I am very, very excited for that. I, I think that about uh, wraps it up. Uh, Damon Lindelof, thank you so much for joining us to talk about the new Twin Peaks and to talk about The Leftovers. Everyone can check out the season three finale, the series finale of The Leftovers, nine o'clock this Sunday on HBO. Against Twin Peaks. Oh, my God. Oh, that's right. <laughs> what will I watch? Showdown. What should Clash I watch, of the guys? <laughs> Well, fortunately, there is there is DVR right. and, and stuff like yeah. that. Um, but he's Addy W. Uh, Doc Jensen. I'm at Darren Franich. Damon, can people find you anywhere beyond watching the the upcoming leftovers for now? Yeah, I'm you know I'm at Damon Lindelof on Instagram. So it's a much safer place for me than Twitter. So if you like pictures of of sinks and an occasional political rambling, go to my Insta. Damon, after next week, leftovers will be all over, and and so your summer can be just just can be completely devoted to thinking about Twin Peaks. So maybe we can have you on like later on in the season and see how you feel about it. I would be honored. Thanks, Damon. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, guys. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> 
Thanks for listening to today's episode of a Twin Peaks podcast, a podcast about Twin Peaks, brought to you by Shudder, the premium streaming video service devoted to horror, thrillers, and suspense, curated by horror fans who have a deep love and respect for the genre, and it shows so many great films on here, films you never knew existed, plus some old favorites that never fail to frighten. Remember, you can find Shudder on the web, Apple TV, Roku, Google Play, Amazon Prime for $4.99 a month, or $4.99 $49.99 with an annual membership. And don't forget, listeners can get a free month by entering promo code PEAKS at checkout. Go to Shudder.com today and find the best collection of horror available to stream anywhere.